Money is just a number. It has absolutely no intrinsic value. There's nothing in nature that can recognize it. It doesn't even exist outside of the human mind. It's purely an invention of our cognition. Now, within our society, it's very useful as a medium of exchange, a token of exchange, but it has to be absolutely understood. That is all it is. It is a tool. And making more of these tokens <laughs> does not make us richer, particularly if we are in the process destroying all the things that are essential to our lives, to our meaning, to our purpose, to our relationships. That's international best-selling author David Corton. And this is The Emerging Future. Welcome to the Emerging Future Podcast, where we hear wisdom from the curious, compassionate, and courageous co-creators of our desired and emerging future. I am your host, Joel DeYoung, and today we hear from author, speaker, and engaged citizen, David Corton, who is a living embodiment of curiosity, compassion, and courage, and whose wisdom comes from many years of exploration and experience. In early adulthood, David devoted his career to ending poverty— Later, after holding a faculty position at Harvard, he made a permanent break with academia, which he says was the most intellectually liberating decision of his life. Fast forward a couple of decades after being employed by the foreign aid establishment, living and working in Africa, Latin America, and Asia, David completely defected from the establishment after recognizing the captivity foreign aid was actually creating. Eventually, David came to see the connection between the social and environmental devastation he was witnessing abroad and the economic policies practiced in advance by the United States through its foreign policy, use of military power, and corporate reach. Finally, embracing an Earth-centered living systems frame, David has since devoted his professional life to applying the lessons of life's self-organizing evolutionary journey to the quest to displace a global corporate-driven money-seeking suicide economy with a life-serving living earth economy. David says, The key to the human future resides in a simple truth that resides in most every human heart. We are living beings born of and nurtured by a living earth. International bestseller, When Corporations Rule the World, is David's seminal work. In this conversation, David and I discuss his most recent book, Change the Story, Change the Future, A Living Economy for a Living Earth. David says, quote, We will prosper in the pursuit of life, or we will perish in the pursuit of money. The choice is ours. I've known about your work for a few years now. Mm -hmm. um, so I feel like that's kind of late in the game because you've been writing books for, for a long time. Um, but I've, I've been enthralled by, by your writing. And I also um, am married to an eco-theologian. 
who Ooh. follows you on Twitter, and she's often <laughs> retweeting <laughs> what, oh you're, what you're tweeting. So if I don't get it from your books directly, I get yeah. it from her. Well, um, I hope to meet her one day. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And she would love to meet meet you. So we'll have to make that happen. Yeah. Good. Um, yeah. Um, and and I've been your name has come up you know, over the course of the last 18 months, a couple of times as just a person that would be ideal for this podcast. So it's really a pleasure to be sitting here with you mm-hmm. and um, to finally have the moment where uh, we get to talk about you and your work and changing the story and changing the future. Right. That's that's actually the book that I, I kind of wanted to um, talk to you the most about because um, I read it a couple of times um, over the course of the last couple of weeks. And uh, I really feel like it, it lands well with the idea of the emerging future and um, the stories that have been told to us and sort of this undoing of, of old stories and creating something new and really sensing into uh, what's emerging in this time for humans, for the planet. And, um, and uh, yeah, and, it, and I, I really appreciate how the the book brings you back to this central idea of living earth and the um sort of like the mystical magical side of this wonderful planet that we live on mm-hmm. so the first question that i just wanted to ask you was when do you feel most connected to living earth i guess that would be when i'm out in the wilderness someplace. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's one of the tragedies of our time, partly with overcrowding, urbanization, and so forth, that we have much less contact with nature. Mm-hmm. And I had the benefit of growing up, and not only with strong family connections, but lived in a place where we had a lot of wilderness, and uh, I spent a lot of time in nature. Where was that? Where'd you grow up? Uh, Longview, Washington. Oh, really? And uh, you know, my favorite place on Earth was actually up at uh, Spirit Lake and Mount St. Helens, which at that time was a very beautiful mountain before the eruption. Hmm. And it was <clears throat> one of the truly unspoiled places on Earth around there. And I worked a number of summers at the YMCA camp. But that was... I think that had a very powerful impact on me. You, you know, you experience Earth as a living being, and I think that's that's not just in the mystical sense. It's it's absolutely what we're learning from science, mm-hmm. and it is um, it is what we have to understand. It's the thing that's so amazing to me is that when I when I speak to audiences. Uh, I often tell them, I, I, I'm not going to tell you anything that you don't already know. For example, we are living beings born of and nurtured by a living earth. You know. mm-hmm. Is there anybody that doesn't really know that at some level? And that life is just is something extraordinary beyond our mental comprehension. And... <clears throat> To, to me, what's most fascinating is that the deeper you get into our scientific understanding, the more extraordinary it all becomes. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you get further and further into what 
science can't begin to explain, and yet what we can observe and we know, and it's um, it, it's very much aligned with an awful lot of traditional wisdom. Mm-hmm. But but now with the ability to actually peer beyond the the veil to see the complexity of the relationships between organisms, mm-hmm. and particularly. To, to me, the most extraordinary thing once you get into it is, be, is coming to understand our own bodies and the fact that we're each comprised of tens of trillions of individual living, decision-making cells that are all organizing in the way that creates and maintains the crucible of our consciousness and our agency. Uh, I mean, it's just the most breathtakingly amazing thing mm-hmm. once you get into it and as you know my own professional field is actually organization is business organization but it's always the question of how do how do things organize mm-hmm. and the complexities of this organization are are just so beyond anything that we begin to have any understanding of in our organizational sciences, and yet it's essential to our being, and we're at a point in our human experience where we absolutely have to honor it and try to adapt our ways of of living so that at the very best we are helping Earth and the living systems of Earth maintain their own health and vitality. Mm-hmm. So it's not just our own, our immediate bodies, but it's, in a sense, all the bodies that together organize on this planet, which, again, that the frontiers of science, um, I mean, it's, again, it's just beyond imagination that, you know, the astronomers now estimate there's somewhere around two trillion... Uh, Galaxies, galaxies, galaxies (laughs) in the universe, and each of those galaxies may have have billions or trillions of stars, and then how many planets on that? Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, we certainly haven't discovered, studied all the planets, but we still haven't found any other planet that there's any indication that it has surface conditions like ours. They may be same size, same distance from their sun, Mm -hmm. but the conditions of climate and water and so forth that are all essential to our existence. We haven't found anything that we have reason to believe has a similar surface. I mean, how breathtaking is that? And what does that say about our responsibility to bring ourselves into balance with this earth Mm -hmm. uh, and learn to live in a way that that maintains our own vitality as a species. Um, But, of course, it's also part of finding what is our place in this wondrous thing. Mm -hmm. Because the deeper you get into understanding it, the clearer it becomes that, um, well, that life on this planet organizes in ways that are essential to maintain the climate stability, the the conditions of uh, the the chemical composition of the atmosphere and the oceans and the soils and all the aspects that are absolutely essential to our <clears throat> well-being. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I mean, I sort of laugh at the people that think they're going to go off to Mars and terraform it. I mean, <laughs> you know, good luck and good riddance. <laughs> yeah, who wants to um, go there anyway? <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, we got a much better start on this planet. Exactly. Why don't we figure out how to, <laughs> mm-hmm. how to make our lives work on this, uh, on this planet and help it, help it recover, which I believe it can do if we don't continue our journey of destroying its capacity to do what it does. Mm-hmm. You know, it was really interesting when you talk about evolution um, and the, the history of this planet was 14 billion years old. And everything that uh, has occurred between that time and now has been this increasing complexity. And, and um, like you said, living systems that, yeah. that organize and continue to expand and organize and become more complex to the point where you said in the book, and this really uh, stuck with me, that living earth or mother earth birthed humans yeah and i had never really thought about it that way like the earth actually birthed us yeah in a way it's it's so totally obvious (laughs) (laughs) we sure didn't birth earth (laughs) uh but it's these things that the absolutely most obvious facts that are so fundamental to our understanding of who we are and what our possibilities are and what our responsibilities are Mm -hmm. and totally missing from our sort of day-to-day understanding and missing from what we're taught in university or our education Mm -hmm. yeah it doesn't it's not it's not a common uh mainstream conversation by any means right (laughs) but but it is like the most um important kind of real conversation that we need to be having at this point um can you so the book is it changed the story changed the future so can you talk about the current story can you can you provide a frame for the current story and and then we can contrast that with kind of the, the story that uh, we need to be telling yeah um I mean, the first the first piece of this, of course, is recognizing that one of the th- the things that makes us distinctively human is our distinctive cognitive capacity hmm. that we can create worlds in our mind in ways that, so far as we know, there's no other living species with that capability. Which I also find interesting because everything in creation seems to have its purpose. So. There, there must be some deeper purpose to our life. But understanding the extent to which we define our human nature by our stories mm-hmm. is absolutely essential before we even get into the conversation of what are the stories and how do they influence mm-hmm. our okay. being. Um, and, you know, in terms of my own experience, uh, one of the things that has sensitized me to that is the experience that my wife, Fran, and I have had living in very different parts of the world, in mm-hmm. Africa, Asia, and Latin America, as well as, of course, growing up in the United States. Mm-hmm. And in that experience, if you really pay attention to the cultures you're immersed in, you realize how different their basic stories are and their basic understanding of just about everything. Mm-hmm. And then how that plays out in terms of very different ways of organizing and living. 
So then you begin to realize that we talk about what is our human nature? Are we inherently loving, caring, cooperative, et cetera, et cetera? Or are we inherently hateful, angry, violent, destructive? Well, it's kind of an important question. But if you understand this deeper frame that it's about our, you know, we can choose our cultural stories. We can literally choose our nature. Now, I do think at the deepest level, <clears throat> given that we absolutely cannot exist except in community, mm -hmm. that our ultimate nature leads us in that direction of being good community citizens. Can you expand on that a little bit? Like, because that I think that's really fundamental and important. Yeah. We can't exist outside of community. Well, if you think of Earth as a living community of all beings, uh, at the deepest level, uh, you know, we can't exist on Mars unless we <laughs> take our... Uh, take our food and water and, <laughs> and air, <laughs> air and <laughs> yeah. all, all that stuff with us. Uh -huh. So um, that, that's the starting point. But the other is, you know, <clears throat> not too long ago we were talking about, you know, it takes a village to mm -hmm. raise a child. So you think about that quite literally. Um, think about our species and the length of time it takes for a newly born human to develop the capacity for self-care. Mm -hmm. That's a long period of time. Mm -hmm. Now we have these kind of fantasies of the, you know, the lone hero out in the <clears throat> wilderness. Right. And of course that's usually a man who can't reproduce by himself <laughs> anyway. Um, and if you really take that seriously and that lone person is a woman, there is no way that one woman can provide the care necessary for a child at the same time put in the time and energy and so forth to uh, you know, find her food, their food, prepare that food, do all the maintenance tasks and so forth. Mm -hmm. And you begin to realize that, well, you could probably, you know, you could construct some scenario where some individual would get through this for a time. But <clears throat> there's no way that you can have really healthy, happy human beings unless we are, uh, in a sense, living as a village in which we have various kinds of, of skills and gifts and so forth, and we work this out together. Mm -hmm. um, and now we have, uh, you know, during the lifetime of my generation, which is also part of the depth of this understanding, have gone through the most extraordinary human transition in terms of, um, of becoming a truly global species. And to me, just the, you know, the simple facts that underscore this is, in the 1960s, uh, when my wife and I were shortly out of, well, we were actually still in our graduate years in college, mm -hmm. um, spent three years living in Ethiopia. And <clears throat> during that time, we traveled around the country in our Land Rover. Um, 
and you know travel places where literally it's like going back three thousand four thousand five thousand years wow. in uh, in human experience completely cut off from any sign of modern civilization i mean we drove our Land Rover, but, uh, mm-hmm. you know, there were no gas stations, and man, if, if there was any breakdown, I mean, we'd, we'd, places where we'd never see another car, and even <laughs> even in Addis, which was the center of modernity in Ethiopia, our only communication with anyone outside of, actually outside of Addis, but outside of, uh, of Ethiopia, surely, was by snail mail. Mm. So, you know, it took two to three weeks for a letter to get back and forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, now places that we visited where we never saw another car have Internet cafes, and people are in instantaneous um, video, audio contact, potentially with any other person on Earth. Mm-hmm. That is an extraordinary uh, shift and transformation and. um in our basic experience. And then within that, we have become, uh, at least many of us that have been immersed in that experience, um, it's not at all uncommon now for people to become immersed in another culture, although we're getting so much uh, homogenization of cultures that uh, many of the experiences that we had are becoming increasingly impossible mm. now. But <clears throat> if you're paying attention, we still have the capability to recognize the diversity in our stories and the and the implications of that. So now with this global communication, we have the capability as a species to think and act as a species and thereby to actually choose the stories by which we live. Hmm. So that's, to me, the context within which we have to understand uh, our, our current situation mm-hmm. and, and talk about our stories um, and recognize that in different places on, on Earth in our previous experience, um, people were crafting their stories out of their experience and motivations and <clears throat> particularly particularly in our western experience um, well actually I, th- I, th- I think you can pretty much generalize this that the the great civilizations generally developed as imperial civilizations with centralized control leadership. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Western civilizations were most extractive in terms of the colonization and the reaching out beyond their own geographical t- uh, territory to uh, command resources and people beyond themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, in China, it seemed they, they certainly had an imperial structure, but it was much more contained within their own borders, and that in itself is, is a significant difference. But it was also built more on, um, you know, less a process of, uh, of, of domination and exploitation and <clears throat> embodied a 
deeper sense of connection to to life and to earth and to living systems. Now, in the West, we became particularly exploitative of nature and one another. And we developed religions out of that, which featured the patriarch in the sky, Mm -hmm. and which moved further and further away from the kind of mix of patriarchy and matriarchy Mm. or community and the connections with the land. And so we developed stories to essentially legitimate that. And so we've moved to the uh, monotheistic religions in the West, which are based on an assumption or understanding that there is some controlling force or being. And it's always kind of curious to me as a white male with a beard uh, <laughs> that this god figure kind of looks like a, a white elder male, male <laughs> with a beard. Now, how did that ever happen? Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> but the key here is recognizing this is not some revelation of ultimate truth. Mm. It, it's a story that made sense to a group of people at a particular time. Mm-hmm. Um, and the and there are other stories, other variations of that. Now we're still we're still playing out many elements of that story. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but again, particularly in the West, um, we went through this period of the you know the the uh, Enlightenment and the scientific revolution and mm-hmm. all of that in which through science we developed a very different story Mm -hmm. a very new for the time very new story i don't think there are any uh, real precedents for it but the idea that um, everything is mechanism Mm -hmm. and that everything can be described and understood as mechanism and that consciousness and intelligence are illusions Mm. You talk in the book about the distant patriarch. Yeah. Right? And then you move into what you called the grand machine. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's the that's the science. Uh-huh. I mean, the distant patriarch, and it, it's, it's very interesting that it, in a sense, absolves us of responsibility, that everything, everything in reality is decided by God and is by God's will. That's the implication of that's that. That's the implication yeah. of it. Yeah. Um, so then we move through this rejection of that. No, there's uh, there's no God. Mm-hmm. But we went to this far extreme. There's no intelligence either, and there's no purpose. There's no meaning to any of this. Mm-hmm. So again, it absolves us of responsibility. Um, yeah, and then we can do whatever we want to We can do whatever earth. we want, yeah. and we can... And each other. ...exploit nature, and even with a distant patriarch... Um, you know, the thrust of that story was that, you know, God put it here for all for our benefit. So it's ours to exploit as we, uh, as we wish. Mm-hmm. Um, and the distant, I mean, the grand machine story doesn't 
really change that piece of it, right. interestingly. But the most extraordinary thing is that it causes us to deny that which is most fundamental and obvious about our nature, mm -hmm. which is our consciousness and our ability for agency or for choice. And, uh, you know, where, where I had where I had the extraordinary breakthrough in my consciousness was a meeting with a very short-stature Chinese woman who, named Mei Wan Ho, who uh, was at the time living in England. She's since passed. But she was an extraordinary scientist, microbiologist. And she was familiar with my work, and I was at that time trying to find a framework that would take us um, beyond the very narrow thinking of conventional economics, mm -hmm. which we need to come back to mm -hmm. in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but she, she explained to me, she says, I'm a new biologist. So what's a new yeah. biologist? She said, well... A conventional biologist takes a living cell, grinds it up, studies its chemical composition, and thinks they have learned something about life. Mm -hmm. I take a living cell, and I study how it manages the flows of energy, water, nutrients, and information to maintain its structure mm -hmm. and its living characteristics and vitality. And then that leads me into the body and how the cells organize together and how they're all engaged in a constant exchange of flows of, again, of energy, water, uh, nutrients, and information. And <clears throat> that helped break me into a whole new mm -hmm. kind of perspective. And, and then you begin to recognize, wow, the, um, the emerging understanding from science of evolution that the conventional mechanistic uh, science is all about entropy, that everything is winding down to hmm. a heat death. But by our understanding of science, the whole thing, the whole story of creation is winding up constantly toward ever greater complexity, mm -hmm. beauty, awareness, and possibility. In a sense, all of the things that conventional science tends to deny. Mm -hmm. So then we begin to see, well, we've got a whole new, a whole new story, a whole new depth of understanding emerging. Yeah, I had a similar breakthrough, too, when I started to learn about living systems. Because I was disenchanted with the business world, and it was just like, trying to you know come to a greater understanding of how th things are working and it and it was um it came a different way but it 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 was this breakthrough when i all of a sudden understood that oh there are these holes and then that are nested within greater holes and within greater holes and so this nestedness yeah, be clear you're talking about holes not yes <laughs> right not holes right not not holes yes 
the whole the whole system but um and that is uh, that is a representation of the evolutionary process too yeah. how things continue to you know go from a cell to a molecule to our bodies to our communities to you know the earth and mm-hmm. it's just like oh okay now i'm i'm starting to understand why we need to start at you know the the biggest frame and then work backwards instead of the other way around yes because if if our largest frame isn't healthy then everything else with within that hole is is not going to be healthy yes that was a breakthrough for me that in itself is an interesting and extraordinary breakthrough. But, of course, what you're saying also is uh, you start with your understanding of the whole as it exists, which is a recognition that it is a whole, with a W, mm-hmm. uh-huh. <laughs> and that everything is interconnected and interdependent. Right. Uh, and that's, then we can, yeah, then we can take apart how do we get here. <laughs> right. And, and now what are we going to do within that frame? Yeah, because all because that's a different frame. Yeah, and how are you going to take action? Well, and that brings us back to <clears throat> to understanding where we've currently gotten off base. Right. If we if we totally lose sight of our our nature mm-hmm. uh, and possibilities as living beings, uh, we strip away all meaning and purpose. <laughs> we s- strip away mm-hmm. uh, the the unfolding creativity of the process. Then we're sitting here just in a meaningless, disconnected world, and the sense of purposeless existential loneliness. Mm-hmm. Wow, I mean, this is, this is absolutely deadly. Why am I here? I, I mean, <clears throat> we've got all these daily pressures. There's no meaning to it. It's... Um, how do I escape from this yeah. horrible isolation? And so that sets us up to embrace exactly what we have as our purpose, which mm-hmm. is a society that is organized around making money, essentially by destroying life, by destroying community by destroying all that makes us human, Mm -hmm. by destroying Earth's capacity to support life. But we measure our progress by GDP, which is essentially saying, but our our money is growing. We're we're making more and more money. And we look at Wall Street, and our bank accounts are Mm -hmm. growing, and our stock market uh, values are growing. So we're getting richer and better off, and we've got more toys, and we can play with more distractions from our loneliness. Mm. And we don't even have to interact with other people directly. We can interact through these uh, communication media. And I don't have to worry about any responsibility but making money. Um, Now, that's the most extraordinary thing about our current science of economics, is that it's all about the story, the neoliberal economics. And it's all about perpetuating this and saying, wow, isn't this great? Um, And again, it ignores this other absolute truth that is, again, so self-evident if you think about it. Mm -hmm. Money is just a number. 
It has absolutely no intrinsic value. There's nothing in nature that can recognize it. It mm-hmm. doesn't even exist ex- outside of the human mind. It's purely an invention of our cognition. Now, within our society, it's very useful as a medium of exchange, a token of exchange, but it has to be absolutely understood. That is all it is. It is a tool. Mm -hmm. And making more of these tokens (laughs) does not make us richer, Mm -hmm. particularly if we are in the process destroying all the things that are essential to our lives, to our meaning, to our purpose, to our relationships. Yeah, I thought it was fascinating when you talked about the de- like your definition of money, or uh, and and how in this culture too that. Well, first of all, you said it's kind of an illusion, you know. That yeah. It, that it has actually any value whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, we can take out. We got a piece of paper it has a number on it. Right. Oh, big deal. Mm-hmm. You know, we could go further and say, well, it used to be backed by gold, so we could take out a gold coin. Okay, have you ever tried to eat a gold <laughs> coin or breathe a gold coin or something? It's, in a way, it's not really worth anything more than that piece of paper. But now we're into the computer age where most of these numbers that represent money are, are nothing but electronic traces on computer hard drives mm-hmm. that we can't even see without the intermediary of the computer. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, what is the ultimate indicator of an insanity (laughs) of a species that organizes every aspect of their life around growing these numbers? Mm -hmm. Wow. That's a weird species. It's weird. If I was a visitor from outer space, I would think, oh, my God, what is that? Well, you call call them corporate money-seeking robots, right? Yeah. And you said – you say that – the first time I heard that, I'm like, whoa, that's that's, uh, a bold statement. And then then you kept – you know, coming back to it. And then, and then the more you kept on coming back to it, the more I'm like, yes, they are robots. <laughs> He's right. Yeah. They are robots. And they are in process of robotizing humans. Uh, I was just listening to this story on the radio. The commentator was noting, um, you know, this is all part of the, the move to automation. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about sort of the latest fast food restaurants mm-hmm. where, <clears throat> now this is not so far out, I mean, uh, everything is programmed by a computer. Mm-hmm. And you still have humans running around uh, passing the food around and, and serving it. But everything they do is programmed by a computer. And so your every move is determined by a computer and a computer program and every move that you take is recorded and you are evaluated on whether you are fitting exactly in the pattern that's turning us into robots it turns us into robots and that is part of the path that we are on Mm -hmm. and again the insanity that well we can replace humans with robots Mm -hmm. we won't need humans well that's kind of interesting again the humans are going off to mars and i mean where does this fit into a yeah. conception of uh, of creation and the the wondrous journey of creation mm-hmm. and its beauty and purpose? When you say that, it just it feels a lot better. When you start, <laughs> yeah, when you start talking about that. Um, can you talk about the corporation a little bit? Oh, I want to I want to stop on that. Yeah. Okay. Because exactly what you said about how it feels better mm-hmm. when we express this this other way. Yeah. 
you're not unusual. <laughs> Anybody that hasn't been completely destroyed in their humanity by the system responds in the same way. Mm. And that is our hope for the future. Mm. We just have to embrace that which we know and which we feel as the affirmation of our deepest being. Now, the implications are huge in terms of almost everything we have created in terms of our institutions and our technology needs to be changed and adjusted so that it supports us in living in ways that are consistent with our reality and our true humanity. Mm -hmm. And that is huge. Mm -hmm. I mean, just before you arrived, we were listening to discussion about the El pending trade war between U.S. and China. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, of course, through the, um, through the implementation, implementation of these various trade agreements, uh, we went through a huge transformation of our economy to where um, we essentially exported most of our jobs to China, mm -hmm. uh, to sweatshops, um, China's gone through the process of <clears throat> extending their empire to get more and more resources from the rest of the world to feed this industrial machine that then in turn feeds our greed. Um, they didn't talk about this necessarily, but that gets us an unbalanced trade relationship with China. So then China is buying up more and more of our um, economic assets both in the United States and around the world. This, in turn, then feeds the resentments that give rise to a Donald Trump mm -hmm. and the political breakdown that is sweeping our country. And, of course, China is using all its people to produce for overconsumption in the United States, which is all channeled through Walmart and uh, and then and, and now increasingly through Amazon. Amazon, yeah. And it's a basically, I mean, it looks pretty good for the Chinese at the moment. They're certainly in command, hmm. but it's it's a it's a it's it's a no no outcome mm -hmm. uh, for everybody. Mm -hmm. And you know the you know they were talking about well if we change this if we stop this and try to reverse it that will be very disruptive yes it will be right. very disruptive but it will be less disruptive if we do it in an orderly way mm -hmm. than if we proceed on our current path which is a path toward total environmental and social breakdown mm -hmm and a huge dieback of, of our species, if not ultimately the, the death of Earth's capacity to support complex life. It was illuminating to me when I was reading um, about how we, we tend to focus on um, the symptoms and making small, minor changes, yeah. and, and how all of that energy kind of gets sucked up in these small uh, yeah. tweaks to the system and never really changes anything about the course <laughs> or the trajectory of where we're going. Exactly. Exactly. And that, you know, that's what we get caught up in our progressive mo movements. Hmm. Um, you know, treating, treating issues of the environment, of 
social justice, economic justice, peace, and all those all those uh, crucial elements as though they're somehow disconnected and um, you if you solve one you make the other worse. No, I mean they're all part of outcomes of exactly the same system dysfunctions mm-hmm. that we have to move beyond. Mm-hmm. I mean if you if you begin to recognize you know we're we're currently consuming as a species, all of us together, um, 1.7 times what Earth can sustain. So we have to dramatically reduce our overall consumption. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, we're also um, currently there's eight people in the world whose financial assets are equal to the total financial assets of the poorest half of humanity. Mm. Um, we have the most extreme maldistribution of resources of any time in human history. Mm-hmm. So we have to reduce our total consumption. We have to do it in a way that meets the needs of every person. Right. And of course, it's absolutely essential in this process that instead of fighting each other and killing each other for the tempted access to right. more resources, we have to totally end war as a means of solving disputes. Completely. Completely. And abolish the arms industry. I mean, if there's some place where we can cut our consumption without any harm mm-hmm. <laughs> to anybody, it would be cutting out all expenditure for, uh, I mean, all consumption of material consumption, energy, and so forth related to, to military. Mm-hmm. Um, but all of this then puts us into the frame of, of a higher vision of what it means to be human and what our possibilities are of living and working with Earth as a member of the Earth community. Okay, again, I'm starting to get excited. Yeah. <laughs> and again, there's our source of I'm hope. I'm sensing a little hope now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, the, the story can seem so daunting, right? Yeah. You know, I mean... it. And it can seem so depressing when you talk about where we're at and like everything is kind of telling the exact same story. And and here we are just sort of in the middle of it day to day, just trying to make ends meet. And yeah, here we are. I mean, that is part of the insidiousness of it. Mm -hmm. Now, again, I mean, this is where I really feel for members of your generation. Mm-hmm. It's, again, the generational thing that, you know, I grew up at a time where we certainly had huge injustice in the United States, uh, particularly around racial differences. But particularly as a, you know, we were beginning to deal with those uh, in a constructive way. And among, you know, if you were, if you were white, we really believed that we were becoming a middle-class society in which essentially everybody had a secure means of living. And, you know, as I look back, I was in some ways a member of privilege, although my my family had gone through the Depression, and, you know, I gather there were times when, you know, there their meals consisted basically of oatmeal, and they were they were quite impoverished. Um, you know, they became reasonably successful local business people, 
But, you know, when I grew up, when I was going to school, there's never any question, will I be able to find a job that mm. will allow me to, uh, again, have a, a basic, comfortable, secure life? Um, you know, with the things that were just part of a middle-class existence. Um, there was never any question of, will I leave college deeply in debt for the rest of my life? Um, it was really a question of, well, what do I want to do with my life? Hmm. And, you know, it wasn't that unique. And, of course, now, <clears throat> as we've gotten into more and more extreme inequality, both nationally and globally, um, you know, unless you come from a very rich family, and even now, given the vagaries of the financial system, even if, you know, even if you may be <laughs> born into a relatively wealthy family, you increasingly face the prospect of losing the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And if, if you do... The safety nets are all uh, in jeopardy. Mm. And so we become ever more desperate, and it becomes ever harder to kind of step back and say, well, wait a minute, let's look at the big picture here. Let's look at where we really want to go, and right. how, do I, uh, how do I direct at least some portion of my life energy to making that vision a reality? Mm -hmm. So it's really insidious what... Uh, you know, what's going through, and your your generation is feeling the brunt of it. Because you're, you're saying that pe people have to uh, make ends meet in, in in different ways, which keeps them busy yeah. when, when, and keeps their frame smaller. Yes. Well, and here's another key piece of this, and this uh, understanding comes out of these years working in development in yes. underdeveloped countries. So again, we go back to a time in that experience where the majority of people in these countries lived essentially without money. Mm -hmm. Money was a very peripheral part of their lives. You know, they lived in communities that had their land. They grew their own food. They built their own housing. They had their own education. All you know, the vast majority of it organized without dependence on money. Now, the economist says, well, they are absolutely poor because they have no money. And that's our definition of poverty. But you look back on it and you say, yeah, but, you know, they had, they had fairly reliable sources of food. They had reasonably comfortable housing. Some of them had deeply rich cultures of music and dance and drama and mm. so forth. Um, many of them had very strong uh, you know, village and community cultures and they looked out for each other and so forth. Um, now you can understand development as a process of making them dependent on money. Mm. And the economists actually, as you look back on it, were very explicit about this. We have to get them off of the land Really? and into factory employment so they can contribute to the economy. See, if you're, if you're engaged in subsistence living, you contribute absolutely nothing to GDP. Hmm. Oh, well, in a way, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? <laughs> Sounds like they have a pretty good life. 
some of them had extraordinary life. Um, and this is, um, you know, understanding that as part of, again, understanding our situation. Mm-hmm. You know, and the economist tells them we made so much progress because there's a lot fewer people in absolute poverty, which they still define as if you're making somewhere between a dollar and two fifty a day, um, you're no longer absolutely poor. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're absolutely dependent on that income for buying your food, increasingly buying your water, uh, having a place to sleep at night and so forth, I'd love to see one of those economists live on $2.50 a day any place in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not progress. The progress has to be measured and what is our experience in getting our daily food and having access to clean water and having access to education, essential health care, of being able to support a family and to live in family, live in community, spend part of your life just being there with people that you care about mm-hmm. and doing the things together that that give you meaning as a group. Um, all the things that we are stripping away from, from life and our experience, uh, all in our drive, wow, we're, the stock market's growing and GDP is growing, so look at how, you know, we're all getting economically better and better off, mm-hmm. even as we're actually on a path to collective suicide everything you just described was all like real quality of life yes me- measurements yes like they're very very real tangible measurable things and have nothing to do with money exactly exactly and the more we get caught up i mean i you know i love uh, you know pope francis encyclical mm-hmm. and uh, um you know some of his homilies about you know money is not really evil in itself Mm -hmm. it's the worship of money that is evil Mm -hmm. and that just goes right to the heart of it as soon as money becomes our purpose in life and our purpose of the society that is truly evil if you recognize that evil is that which is destructive of life Mm. And when you don't have meaning, you don't have purpose, anything goes, you know? Yeah. I mean, you know, what, it was a couple of days ago, there, you know, there's a woman who walks into YouTube and starts shooting people. You know, this is becoming common. Yeah. You know, and it's the self-destruction. And, and, and when, you, when you talk about um, meaningless, purpose, purposeless life, um, that's kind of what I think about. I think about uh, our culture that, that just really can't, uh, grab onto some sort of sense of, of meaning and purpose individually and collectively. Yeah. Um, and, and then people are going off the rails, but it makes total sense when you realize, you know, the context by which we're, we're all living in. Yeah. Yeah. And in other ways, um, you know, I owe a lot to my dad, but you know, he was a businessman and Mm -hmm. he, uh, well, he owned a music store, right? He owned a music store. So, uh, yeah. what kind of music store? Uh, all kinds. 
his music and appliances. But yeah, he sold uh, you know pianos and organs and violins and uh, brass instruments, the whole thing. Was that in Longview? Yeah, that was in Longview. Okay. And another extraordinary thing about the store, which was not that uncommon at that time, but it was very part of his policy, is that everything he sold, he serviced. They had a service department. Oh. So <laughs> if you had problems with your appliance or your radio or your musical instrument or uh -huh. whatever, you just bring it in and we fix it. <laughs> uh, I mean, all the things now that you just, you know, you throw it away. There's nothing, no, it's done. nothing to do. It's done. Yeah. <laughs> Um, um, did, you, did you participate in that? Did you work at the store? Oh, I did. Yeah, I worked in the worked in the store when I was a kid, and uh, I, you know, f for the, that early life, I, you know, I was the oldest son, and uh, my destiny was to go back and run the business. So that's what I assumed I would be doing the rest of my life. Interesting. Um, uh, uh, side note: My wife has um, family roots in Longview. Oh. Um, I think is the Vandercooks. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. And her Van Vanderkirk. Kirk. Maybe? Vandercook. Something. Yeah. Like, um, and he, her, like her great grandfather was the engineer that behind who who designed the Longview Bridge. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I bet our families were. Uh, Connected in well, some I'm, way. I'm sure because it's not the very big, <laughs> not town, that big right? town, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's uh, but you know, the thing, the thing that my dad taught me, which was really insidious and which I think is characteristic of our time, he taught me that. Your worth is determined by what someone is willing to pay you. Wow. Which meant that it took me a very long time to realize that I could choose my own life mm. fully. You know, in a way, this, you could say that I, you know, I got to the point where I realized, well, um, you know, the society that I grew up in was designed so you could retire <laughs> and have a regular income and do what you want. Now, we're supposed to, when we retire, go off and sit on the beach or do something that's totally harmless. But, um, you know, I realized that um, having that retirement security, um, I actually had total freedom in terms of how I used my life. And that was what allowed me to write When Corporations Rule the World. Okay. And then the the things I've written since then. Um, you know, whatever royalties come off of that go into the nonprofit and, you know, support my ability to go around and speak and have, mm -hmm. have a wonderful assistant who helps me manage the schedule and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, but, again, that's part of... Part of coming to terms with and recognizing the difference between being a slave of money mm -hmm. uh, to money being a means of living mm -hmm. um, 
and we we come to that in different ways. But it's also again part of the the crisis of your society, your generation. That um, you know, fewer and fewer among us have that option to um, be free of what what in many ways is a, an increasing and literal enslavement. Mm-hmm. Um, that most people have absolutely no choice but to take a minimum wage, insecure job doing work that they hate. Yeah. And that should not be. No. It does not have to be. Yeah. Um, I mean, I really want to make sure that my kids know that, you know, when they, when they enter into the world outside of their, their schooling, that, um, they have the they have the option to you know explore and not um, you know take one of those jobs or more importantly take on debt yeah unnecessary debt for um, you know going to even going to school um, you know is this going to be a wise choice for you to take on debt to get yeah a, a degree they also need to grow up recognizing that your worth is not determined by what someone's willing to pay you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was the trap that I lived in for many years. Mm-hmm. So even you know when I was doing um, doing nonprofit work or doing things that are similar to what I was doing now, um, it somehow wasn't legitimate unless I could find somebody to give me a grant or actually pay me to do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, that's uh, that's fascinating, right? Yeah. Like your internal sense of worth was related to an exchange. Yeah. Yeah. That is the, uh, in a sense, the ultimate measure of your value to society mm-hmm. but of course that's 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 part of this of the story that is destroying us yeah i mean personally i've had to um differentiate some of the work that i do with my value as a person too like it it helps to be able to say i'm doing this 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 doesn't mean like my identity isn't related to this this particular job that i'm i'm doing in, yeah in the moment yeah my, my value isn't this what I'm doing, but I need to do this right now. Yeah. And, and I need to do this so that I can pay the bills and, and right. take care of my family. But that has nothing to do with my inherent value. Well, in a way, your, your inherent value is more uh, expressed through the the good that you do in the world through your podcast hmm. for which nobody pays you anything. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I've, I've gotten more courageous about, um, sensing into my gifts and what I can contribute at a greater level. And this yeah. is, this is an expression of that and, yeah. and being more free to uh, express myself that way, even though, um, people are like, what are you doing? Yeah. Well, and it's, um, I mean, this is, you know, people talk about our white male privilege. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know, I guess I sort of excuse myself by saying, well, at least I can use that privilege Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
to the benefit of society, trying to move us in a direction in which that particular privilege as such does mm-hmm. not exist because we are moving to a society in which everyone ideally has the privilege of being able to find work that is right. meaningful, that meets the essential needs of living, mm-hmm. uh, that gives them a, a role in the community. Mm-hmm. Um, and hey, <laughs> that's what life should be about. There it's it is. what the economy should be about. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think about uh, all of the job loss related to technology and yeah. you know robots doing jobs. I mean, we're we're only increasing the pool of people who you know are going to be out of jobs. Yes, and and then what you just said becomes kind of the the primary question: what what makes your life meaningful now that you don't have that job? Um, yeah, you know, what are your gifts? Well, and, and this is where you're in the ultimate. Well, if I don't have a job, how do I eat? And if I have a family, how, how does my right. family eat? And don't you think that, that should, that at some point, that's the responsibility of a government? To- well, this is, yeah, I mean, this gets into the, the defining issue that is right at the heart of my work at the moment. Well, it's actually been a, for quite some time. But, um, you know, as a now global species, mm-hmm. An absolutely fundamental choice that we have to make is how do we organize? Do we organize around communities or around corporations? Mm -hmm. Corporations are essentially legal chartered pools of money. Is that Ernie back there? Ernie the cat's making noise. It's fine. you know, do we organize? Do we do we turn over the organization of our life right. to corporate pools of money, or do we organize around living communities? Mm-hmm. Now, government, if it's doing what it is supposed to do, is our institution for self-governing as communities, a place. Mm-hmm. Um, our ability to self-govern is essential to our ability to organize our economy in a way that we're all meeting our needs in a sustainable balance with Earth mm-hmm. and in a caring community relationship with one another. And it's not just rights, because the other piece we need to recognize there are no rights without responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Each of us has a right to a means of living. But we also have a responsibility in return for our means of living to contribute consistent with our particular gifts. Mm-hmm. But corporations have rights. <laughs> corporations <laughs> have, have rights. They have increasingly no defined obligations. Mm. Even their obligations to pay taxes are being gradually frittered away. I'm actually just uh, just reading a manuscript for a book that will be out sometime next year, but uh, is looking at the, the legal history of the corporation in the United States and how the law has been manipulated over the years to give corporations more and more rights 
And without ever allowing a recognition that the more rights that corporations have, the fewer rights that people have, unless you are a member of that affluent class that happens to own the corporations. Hmm. And this is not just the people who, you know, have a retirement account that owns some shares in a corporation because they have virtually no input whatever to deciding what those corporations do and their ownership's a tiny piece of the of the total wealth. Um, but the... Um, that concentration of wealth and that concentration of power. And we keep seeing these decisions come down that give corporations more and more power and rights, more ability and right to control our political processes and our politicians, mm -hmm. um, and all of which then lead to uh, carving away our ability and our right to organize as living communities mm -hmm. essential to meet the needs of life. So, and I think this is becoming clearer and clearer to most people. Again, it's, it's even part of the Trump revolution that right. we do not have democracy in the United States. Right. If you go back and really take it apart, you realize we never did have it. Um, it's hmm. just becoming increasingly apparent that we don't have it. And, uh, you know, as Gandhi said about civilization would be a good idea, um, democracy would be a very good idea. Mm -hmm. But it's got to recognize, recognize that that democracy centers on the, both the rights and responsibilities of all people. Mm -hmm. Those have to be equally shared. One of the quotes out of the book that it was one of my favorite lines. Um, you said, the image of a universal spirit manifesting as what we experience as material points to the interconnection of all beings and to the possibility of deeply democratic societies. Yeah. You know, if we could learn to organize the way the cells of our bodies organize, mm -hmm. which is clearly... You know, I think of it, 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 it's clearly as if every one of those individual cells has an awareness of its own individual identity, the importance of that identity, uh, because that is a source of its distinctive gifts on which the body in turn depends. Mm -hmm. And yet also recognizing that, the that it is dependent on the body and the health and integrity of the whole. So if it is not balancing its individual interests with the interests and needs of the entire body, neither can exist. And that's basically the way we need to learn to think about our relationship to society. Mm. Yeah. Um, I'm interested in self-organization and, and business and have been exploring and recently practicing holacracy. Mm. Are you familiar with holacracy? I think I saw that in one of your uh, one of your pieces. <laughs> I was oh. <laughs> looking it up to see what it means. Yeah, well, it's kind of it is that idea of of um, 
you know, organizing an organization in and around holes and holons. It's kind of that, that whole thing. Yeah. Um, so the, the organization that I'm practicing it with is um, Evolution at Work. Uh-huh. And with, with the move to self-organization, it does bring up all of these personal capacity issues. Yeah. Um, and purpose and meaning and all these things that we're just talking about come right up to the surface and present themselves because you don't have a framework where you are, have someone above you and someone below you and mm-hmm. you're no longer kind of um, boxed in, if you will. So yeah. um, so Holacracy has been around for about 10, 12 years and a lot of companies, the, the most popular uh, or well-known is Zappos. They started mm. in implementing this as a as an organizing practice. Um, well, the the organizations uh, that are being liberated to kind of operate more in a self organization capacity, and it frees up the the people within the organization to move with their purpose, mm-hmm. and and it decouples um, a person from a role for the organization too. Mm. So um, the identity thing doesn't and get get all co-mingled but it does bring up the the necessary need for the capacity to differentiate between the organization and the personal yeah and and that's what evolution at work is doing is helping wow. with, with the capacities within those self-organizing structures so i'm working with a team we're all over the it's a very small team you know somebody in australia um somebody in uh, in austria the netherlands and Croatia mm-hmm. and California. And so we're all meeting, we meet online and we're within this self-organizing structure. And we're all yeah. putting in our, our time in, into the organization to, hmm. to kind of grow it. And, and it's, it's, uh, it's a different way too to value, um, yeah. your, your, uh, your stake of the pie or your piece of the pie, because you're contributing and you get you know, the amount that you contribute and it gives people the freedom and the flexibility to take down. If I can't contribute as much th- this month, well, that's fine. You know, we, we continue on, but in the, you know, mm. next month it's going to be higher. So it's really fascinating. And it's just, it's, it's all in line with kind of what you were, you were talking about within self-organization and how to, um, create a, an organizing structure that, that organizes similar to a living organism mm-hmm. as the framework instead of a machine, which is... Well, it also gets you down again into how significant the shift is that we need to navigate. Yeah. Now, you know, just in terms of, you know, legalities and ownership and so forth, obviously that kind of structure needs to be organized some kind of a cooperative. Yep. Now... You know, we're finding if if you've worked with any larger cooperative, you you know that that is not easy to do, right. and it is very difficult to transition from a non-cooperative enterprise to a cooperative mm-hmm. one because everybody is used to the exactly. conventional employee relationship. Right, much easier to start something new. It's easier to start something new, but even with something new. You've got to go into it mm-hmm. with a fundamentally different mindset that is alien to everything that we are taught and experience mm-hmm. in our society. And that, of course, is part of the challenge that we now face. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got to learn how to do that. Mm-hmm. And we've got to learn fast. Yep. Um, 
So very exciting what you're doing. Uh, but it sounds like a very, very small scale, and we've got to learn to do that on a mm-hmm. huge scale. And it, it also then, virtually everything in our legal system yeah. has, has to be transformed. Well, I had a, a conversation with um, Tom Thomason, who's one of the partners for ENCODE.org, and they're looking at the um, actual constitutions of what makes the business to shift mm. that to purpose driven organization uh-huh. so that it removes the uh, possibility well it removes the power essentially um, for a, a small uh, amount of or a small number of people to have the control over the destiny yeah. of the organization and it really it organizes around the purpose of the organization at a fundamental um, legal level well you also have the problem that say you get a group of people together that are learning how to do that yeah it only takes one person mm-hmm. to disrupt that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have to have ways of dealing with that person. Right. <laughs> I have no idea how you do it. Right. Uh, because it, it seems to require a more authoritarian intervention, uh, and mm-hmm. yet that's contrary to the values of what you're trying exactly. to do. So it's... Uh, it's very difficult. So. Yeah, there's some interesting, there's a lot of interesting things happening. I mean, those are the kinds of things that uh, give me kind of hope oh, for, yeah. for the future. Uh, I mean, I know we got to wrap this up pretty soon, but um, yeah. <laughs> I would like, um, I would like to end this conversation on, on hope mm-hmm. and hope for the future. So where do you find that? Well, I find it in in conversations just like this and the number of conversations I'm having that are unlike any conversations I've had in my life, Hmm. uh, reflecting the extent of people waking up to the seriousness of our situation, Um, that there is no way that we're going to survive as a species within the framework that we are in. So, in a sense, bye-bye that. Yep. <laughs> um, this is not something we have an option to hang on to. So, okay, where do we go from here? Now, you know, we're having these conversations within you know, the, the faith community, religious community, but mm-hmm. most extraordinary, the conversations we're having with a group called the Academy of Management, which is the traditional association of business school professors, which I was a member of back when I was on the Harvard Business School faculty. And I left a long time ago because it just had absolutely nothing to do with (laughs) anything that I cared about. I am now being drawn back into that organization by a group of management professors that recognize the same thing we recognize, that that system is fatally flawed and that we absolutely need to transform at the most fundamental level our business organizations and our training of people for business. Mm-hmm. So these are the things that, that, that give me hope, indicating there is this readiness and the things that, that you warm up to and resonate to uh, in the same way that so many other people that I talk to do with a sense of, wow, maybe there is hope. Mm -hmm. 
we have the potential for more than we have so far demonstrated as a species. So, um, and it's such a it's such a, a warmer uh, vision for the future. The one that you're painting, yeah, you know, it's it's one that. You know, every time we start talking about that side of the story, the new story, the emerging story, it's, oh, okay. There is, there is, there is a vision here um, that if we can start shifting our focus towards that and, and our attention and change our frames and just, just start moving, moving in that direction that um, it's going to be okay. It isn't going to be easy. <laughs> <laughs> well, we know that, right? Well, life, life yeah. isn't really easy anyway. No, but we haven't yet seen anything like what... <laughs> um, I don't know. I, 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 you know, my life is devoted to keeping the hope of possibility alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... Um, well, I'll just say it isn't going to be easy. The more, you know, the more people we have awake and working on it with a, a good heart and a good mind, uh, the better chance that we can get through it. But the barriers as we see them uh, with the corporate control of media and money and government mm-hmm. and the number of authoritarian governments that are springing up around the world, the number of places on earth that are being rendered unlivable. So, you know, we've become increasingly a world of refugees. Um, It's somehow getting the balance between the recognition of the depth of the problem, Mm -hmm. but also the hope of the, of the possibility. Um, but we don't have a lot of time. Mm-hmm. And you're involved in uh, a few different organizations um, that are working on this. Um, if people want to get in touch with you, want to learn about your work, where do you recommend they go to do that? Well, the best the best way to get acquainted with my work is just go to my website, which is davidcorton.org. Corton spelled K-O-R-T-E-N. So. Mm-hmm. And how about a first book? <laughs> well, I think maybe a first book would be the one that you mm-hmm. named that changed the story, changed the future. Yeah. A Living Economy for a Living Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the shortest of my books, and it is the most accessible and the uh, the broadest overview. Yeah, um, I was able to get it on uh, audiobook too. Yeah, so I could listen to it. Right, and went for some nice long jogs. And, yeah, and listen to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, that's that's the thing with your generation. I'm still not into listening to books. Uh, no, <laughs> in audio. No. But, do you uh, listen to podcasts? I do. Okay. I do. Uh, but I still I, I still read my books, and I still prefer the the paper books too. I can't. Uh, yeah. What what I love about um, the the podcast is or audio learning is especially because I, I have four kids yeah. and and 
all of the in-between transitions, you know, yes. are either I have to clean up the kitchen, right? <laughs> or like I get the kids in bed and I've got to, you know, do the laundry. And, yeah. and so it's during those times where I can actually stimulate <laughs> my mind and, yeah. and continue learning. So, yeah, I mean, that, that's fascinating. I mean, mm-hmm. Part of the, um, part of the sharing of household duties, but also, finding ways to really make use of that time mm-hmm. in more ways than just the, uh, the physical labor. Mm-hmm. Um, Tony, we, we, we got, got to, <laughs> let's wrap this up, but I, I do want to thank you, um, again for your time, mm-hmm. uh, for being open to having this conversation and for all the work that you're doing. Um, I appreciate it on your website. You went through the changing the turning points in your life mm-hmm. that was really helpful for me to understand your journey and that um you kind of peeled back the onion through your experience yes and you know leaving academia defecting from the establishment <laughs> and and now embracing an earth-centered living systems frame um that storyline i thought was really really beautiful so mm-hmm. thank you thank you um for your life and for sharing it with everybody else Well, thank you for helping with that sharing. You're welcome.